as I must go or send a substitute. And he tells the story of uh, visiting a, a village in Africa somewhere and an infant had died in that village and the shaman decided that the blame lie with this one woman in the tribe. Everybody was aghast at that because this woman was uh, one of the most loved and respected women in the tribe. And uh, everyone knew that she was not responsible for the birth, for the death of this, this child. But in order to prove her innocence, she had to climb to the top of the tallest tree and jump. And of course, she died. Sanders says that uh, probably every bone in her body was broken from that height. And he goes on to, to describe how it was always a concern to him when he would hear folks say, well, you know, other folks' religion and what they believe is good enough for them. And his response was, you know, it wasn't good enough for that woman. And if you're not happy about it being good enough for that woman, then it ought not to be good enough for you as well. Sharissa returned from Senegal and was telling me about a man that she had spoken with there who was pretty sure uh, vague memories and, and pieces of conversations and things that he had put together over the years, he was pretty sure that, that his father had died as a human sacrifice. He said that sometimes uh, in, in a certain village, the person who is known as the demon protector is just not satisfied with an animal sacrifice. Where's that idea come from? That something or someone must be sacrificed in order to protect a whole tribe. Where does that need to assign responsibility come from when an infant dies? Someone must be to blame. Every month, some of you I know uh, get the, the New Tribes Mission magazine, comes to our house, and it's always just chucked full with stories of the difference that the gospel is making in the lives of people all around the world. And it's always pitted against personal testimony from many of the folks whose lives are being transformed by the good news of Jesus, pitted against their concerns about a sense that there is something bigger and and beyond them in this life. Uh, Concerns of right and wrong and worry about sin and guilt and and fear of death, and questions regarding life afterwards. And I'm, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this, this mechanism that seems to be built into humanity, at least for many. This mechanism that stirs an awareness of something more. This just isn't all there is, is there? that sometimes pushes thinking beyond the, the day-to-day of routine life, stirs concerns about right and wrong and guilt, responsibility, the afterlife. 
Reminds me of the statements that Paul makes in, in Romans 1. We've, we've looked at those statements times past. You may recall he says that, that because of creation and all that is seen, everyone knows that God exists. That he's a sovereign and righteous and, and all-knowing judge. And Paul says that, that Jews and Gentiles, and that's the category in the scripture for all the non-Jews in the world, Jews and Gentiles, they know God's moral will. And they are without excuse for not living according to that moral will. And Paul goes on to say, what's more, they even suppress the truth about God. Jeremiah, that Old Testament prophet, expressed it this way. He said, he said the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Asked Jeremiah. And so it is this human heart condition that brings us to our second Advent theme this morning. And you've, you've heard it. It's been read about and we've, we've sung about it. We saw it written out in the video. Hope. Hope. One of the traditional themes of Advent is hope. Last Sunday, you remember, we considered joy. Let me remind you real quickly about what we learned because it leads us right into, I think, this morning's theme. We heard the angel declare to the shepherds, I, I bring you good news of, let's see, was it, was it a little bit of joy? Uh, occasional joy? Sometimes joy? Great joy. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Yay! Yay. Shoo! Don't let that familiar truth fall on you know, dead ears or unresponsive hearts, right? It was great joy to God. Great joy to God. The birth of His Son. God was acting out of the joy, we said, in which He lives. God delights in Himself. God exalts himself. God delights in his plans. And a part of his eternal plan was to come closer to humanity than anyone had ever conceived of. To come closer than we could imagine. And it was out of the joy in which God lives. Father, Son, and Spirit. Living in an unending sense of joy and delight and happiness that they cooked up, can I put it like that? That they cooked up or schemed up this plan of salvation. All that God does is done out of joy, the joy in which he lives. It was in great joy that God showed up on earth like never before. And we said that it's God's joy that is the ultimate source of joy for the people of God. Remember we said that joy has to do with a sense of well-being, a certain sense of, of contentment, security. God lives with the ultimate sense of well-being. Why wouldn't he? He is ultimately secure. And in sending his son to be the savior of the world, he offers his well-being to those who put their faith in his son as savior. And so when we talk about 
joy in the Advent season. It is the joy of God made manifest in the plan of salvation which when it is embraced by individuals through faith, they become recipients of God's joy. That's why the good news is great joy. And you're looking pretty excited about it. <laughs> great joy. Did I mention this is great joy? Woo-hoo! Nothing like this has ever happened. The longing of the human heart to be secure, that longing to know that all is well, that sense of contentment and well-being, it could finally be experienced because God made himself known as never before. Okay, a little bit of what we learned from joy. So our text this morning is from Matthew's gospel. It's the piece of, of his Christmas story. So let's stand and, and read this together, shall we? Here we go, together. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." My brothers and sisters, have you heard this text before? Yes. I mean, even just a few minutes ago. Yes. Yes, it's a familiar text, right? It is also the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Now, the angel said to Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus. That's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. So tell me, were you listening? What is the Lord going to save his people from? Their sins. Okay. Now, I want you to turn to someone next to you for just a minute, and I want you to to ask this question, why did God choose to save people from their sins and not something else. And you're thinking, that's a no-brainer. Of course it is! Remember, we lose sight of the important in the familiar. Okay, so ask your neighbor, so why did God choose to save people from their sins and not something else? Go ahead, see what your neighbor thinks.
Okay. What brilliant answer did your neighbor give you? It's our sins that separate us from God, and he wants us to be with him. Our sins separate us from God, he wants us to be with him. Okay, okay. What else? Everybody's satisfied with that answer. <laughs> Paul? Okay, Rick, you were going to add something. <laughs> but in fact, <laughs> that is <laughs> what he did. Yeah, Diane. She. Yeah, Nat. Okay. 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 Interesting, isn't it? We, we, we know. We know that God, that, that, that there's desire for relationship with, with humanity that he's created. And, and we know that and that is so familiar to us. We know that God acted out of that desire and, 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 and wanting to have that relationship. But we don't say that with the proper amount of enthusiasm, I'm pretty sure. This is an amazing truth, my friends. Um, and I guess I'll probably just keep saying things like that until you get tired of hearing me saying it. But we've got to get it in this Advent season. Um, wow. That, that God would act out of this, this incredible character and quality of love that, that is in Him. To save people from sin and not something else. You've, you've said it. Sin... Sin was, if I can put it this way, was and is the problem. Sin is always the problem. And again, here's something that we know. We know that sin is the problem. We've, we've learned that sin always creates pain and destruction. Sin never gives life. Sin doesn't bring anything good. We know all this, right? have got to take it down into our hearts and understand that sin is always the problem. It's important to be reminded of the significance of this very familiar truth, of what it says about God. God was not satisfied with anything less than getting to the issue. Not just an issue, not just a problem. It was the problem and it was the issue. And God being who he is went straight to the problem. That's worthy of an amen. Amen. Yeah. God was not satisfied with anything less than dealing with the problem. People everywhere. People everywhere in the world, no matter what culture, where they're located, they are living out the truth of Romans chapter 1. Paul goes on in that text to say that the suppression of the truth about who God is causes them to give themselves to worship of self and other created things. We were created to worship. You know this. We've talked about this in the past. Because we're created to worship, we're going to worship. We're going to give ourselves, we're going to give our energy, we're going to give our, ourselves in surrender 
to something or someone because it is in us to do that. We are created, we are dependent, we are needy, we are worshiping beings. And that, I think, is where hope comes into play. Because when we give ourselves to worship, when we give ourselves to exaltation, there is a sense of hope that we place in someone or something. We, we put confidence in an object that we believe can bring change. Because we all know something's wrong. Again, it's built in. Things aren't as they should be. Something is wrong. And so there is, there is always hope that the problem can be fixed. I mean, what's, what's one of the saddest commentaries that we ever say about someone? They lost hope. They gave up. They had no hope. So hope is that, that powerful emotion that I think springs from within us in response to knowing that life just isn't how it ought to be. Even if we can't verbalize it that way, I think that's a part of what Paul is saying in that Romans chapter 1 text. So whether it's, it's hope in a relationship, whether it's hope in a system, in a government, in education, in medicine, in you fill in the blank. People place a certain degree of, of confidence in that object of their hope so that it will bring about better things. In an article in Psychology Today, psychologist by the name of Barbara Fredrickson states that hope comes into play when our circumstances are dire. When things are not going well, or at least there's considerable uncertainty about how things will turn out. She states that hope literally opens us up and removes the blinders of fear and despair and allows us to see the big picture, thus allowing us to become creative and have belief in a better future. That's that's kind of what drives hope. The possibilities for something better because now isn't cutting it. The Christianity Today article earlier this year, Andy Crouch said, human beings can live for 40 days without food, four days without water, and four minutes without air, but we cannot live for four seconds without hope. So powerful. So powerful. And so my question for you this morning is, what is your source of hope. What is your source of hope? And, and I ask that because I'm confident that hope is only as helpful as the object in which it is placed. Your hope is only as helpful as the confidence or the reliability of the object in which you put your hope. Many of you know my son Luke works for Wells Fargo. And we often laugh about that statement that your money is invested, your money that's invested in Wells Fargo is protected, FDIC insured, up to $250,000. Now there's a big source of comfort. (laughs) (laughs) 
And who is it that holds the insurance policy? Uh, we're, we're hopeful. We're hopeful that, that it'll be insured. We're hopeful that, that this particular new medicine will work. We're hopeful that, that Tim Tebow really has brought the Broncos to new life. We're hopeful that the economy is on an upturn. We're hopeful that Social Security will be around when it's time to draw on it. There are so many things that the angel could have said to Joseph that, that would come to pass, that, that could, could have truth in them. Call him Jesus, for he's going to save his people from the Romans. Call him Jesus. For he's going to save his people from their diseases. Call him Jesus, for he's going to save his people from the heartbreak of broken homes and marriages. Call him Jesus, for he is going to save them from poverty and injustice. Why not? Those are all significant issues. Those are all important issues. Those are all life-changing kinds of things. That was not the announcement from the angel. Because that was not the problem. God wanted to get at the heart of the issue, which we always know is the human heart. You see, all those other things, things that that we can make lists of that, that concern us in the world, things that consistently drive people to have a sense of hope that, that, that this could be better, things could improve. Those aren't the problems. They're symptoms of the problem. The problem is the human heart. The problem is the heart that was created by God to worship and live in a relationship of intimacy and unimaginable love, that heart chooses other. That heart chooses to define itself apart from its creator. The rejection of God as creator is the problem of every human heart. And what results is a world that is full of of pain and mess. The world in which we live. And what so often happens, the results are that there are lots of good intentions of so many to promise fixes to the problems when in fact there is no fixing the problem apart from the Savior who came to forgive people of their sin. You will call him Jesus. The Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. I want to suggest to you that apart from being saved from the problem, which is a heart that has turned us away from our creator to worship of self and other things, causing us to place our hope in things that do not bring ultimate and eternal satisfaction apart from Jesus. There is really no genuine, lasting hope. I love the way that Michael Horton, he's a theology professor at Westminster Sem in California, he, uh, he speaks to it this way. He says, 
Biblical faith emphasizes that we cannot ascend to God on our own. Rather, the God of the Bible descends down to us. He says, our inner self is not the playground of the Spirit, but in fact, the haunted plains on which we build our towers of Babel. In other words, our hearts are idol factories, and they are in bondage to sin and spin. We look for a God we can manage rather than the God who is there. And in this Advent season, when we talk about hope, my friends, we are talking about the God who is there, the God who has chosen to reveal himself and to do something that is so uncanny, is so outrageous, is so unbelievable. And we celebrate something in this Advent season that is totally absurd in the thinking of so many people. As Dr. Horton says, we believe in a God that descends to us in the form of a baby boy who would grow into manhood for the sole purpose of dying for the sins of people. That's ridiculous. That's outrageous. And throughout history and in all of the world's cultures, the rule of religion is that people must search for and satisfy their deity of choice. The gods wait to be appeased. They do not pursue. And of course, the risk in that system of belief is that the deity may not be satisfied. (laughs) In this Advent season, those who are followers of Jesus proclaim the absurd truth that God came down, that God pursued sinful people, that God in his holiness demanded payment for sin, and then he paid the debt himself. Go figure. Where's where's your hope today? What do you put your hope in? You know, I I call this sermon the, the risk of hope. Hope always has an element of risk to it. You you think about anything that, that that folks tend to put their hope in. Again, it's only as good as the reliability, the certainty the character of the object in which we put our hope. And I would would challenge you to think again about the outrageous claims of the gospel. It is beyond our comprehension that a God could love so much. It is beyond our comprehension that a God could be so abundantly patient. Rick and I laugh about God's patience. Whoa, is he patient. We're living examples. It is, it's beyond imagination that God would pay 
such an enormous debt. It's beyond our wildest dreams that God would make us his children. None of that can happen apart from the child who was born to save his people from their sins. Sin is the problem. God fixes the problem himself in his son for his glory and his sake. And boy, do we benefit from the fix. So as we talk about hope and think about hope, pray for others to have hope, I think the the appropriate starting place for us in this Advent season is to remember that true hope, certain hope, hope that sounds incredibly risky, but in reality is the smallest amount of risk, is found in the character and the intentions and the good activities of our God towards those whom he has created. Some of you probably read this uh, about a year ago, September, just a little over a year ago, September of last year. Um, Christopher Hitchens was, was diagnosed with, with cancer. And you know, Hitchens is uh, he's, he's a popular author. He's an atheist. Uh, he described his battle with the illness in an article that he wrote for Vanity Fair. He said this. He said, I am badly oppressed by a gnawing sense of waste. I had real plans for my next decade and felt I'd worked hard enough to earn it. Will I really not live to see my children married? To watch the World Trade Center rise again? To the dumb question, why me? The cosmos barely bothers to return the reply, why not? I sometimes wish I were suffering in a good cause or risking my life for the good of others instead of just being a gravely endangered patient. Allow me to inform you, though, that when you sit in a room with a set of other finalists and kindly people bring a huge transparent bag of poison to plant into your arm and you either read or don't read a book while the venom sac gradually empties into your system, you feel swamped with passivity and impotence, dissolving in powerlessness like a sugar lump in water. What a statement. Where's your hope this season? How about those you know and love? Where's their hope? What are you praying for? What are you celebrating? Can I suggest that we come back often as the people of God to that incredible point where hope springs to life and finds fulfillment. And that is in a little baby that was named Jesus because he came to grow up to die to forgive you and me and those we love of our greatest problem. Amen.